Luke 22. We're going to read 7 through 16, and then we'll go to John 13. So this is Thursday, Passover week. Luke 22, 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Well, where, you want, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Look at the detail that God knows. You can see a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and unsurprisingly found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now go to John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put and put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing all that the Father had given, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, you washed my feet. And Jesus answered them, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is Bathe does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. So during the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode by on his horse, a group of soldiers that were preparing a small defensive barrier that had been broken, and they were fixing that. Their leader who was there was shouting at the men instructions, but not making any attempt to help the men that he was instructing. And so the writer asked him, why are you doing this? Why are you not helping them? And he said, sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, got off his horse, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job was done. He turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time that you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, you go to your commander-in-chief, the president, and I will come and help you again. It was George Washington that had stopped and gotten off his horse 
to help the men fix this. It's a great example of servant leadership, but there is no greater example of servant leadership than we see in John chapter 13, where we see the eternal Son of God who had come here, who had spoke the world into existence, who, who was present with the Father before anything existed and had incredible glory, stooping down to wash humanity's feet as a servant. This is the extreme and the most significant example for us to see. John chapter 13 through 17, and we are not going to rush this. Don't try to rush me. I think, personal opinion, and maybe it doesn't really matter, I love every aspect of the Bible, but I think in the last 2,000 years, if you were to say, what's the most significant book that's been written, I would put forth all of the Bible, but in the Bible, one of the key pillar ones is the Gospel of John. And within the Gospel of John, these five chapters of John 13 through 17 are some of the most pivotal things. Jesus is in the room with those who are going to be the first church leaders. And he is communicating with them who have been with them for over three years now. I'm about to leave. And when I go, and it's actually good that I go, a helper is going to come and he's going to indwell you and he's going to help you remember all the things that I am telling you. And so what we are about to embark on is not only a great example, but some of the, some of the most key things in regard to discipleship and church leadership and church direction and doctrine um, we will examine in the months um, to come. But as we begin today, we will see two men whose names start with J, Judas and Jesus. Judas is deeply self-serving. He aims to betray. Um, Satan has already put into his mind and his heart what to do. In verse 27 of John 13, Satan literally enters the body and inhabits Judas. And then you see Jesus, who is giving himself to others all the way into the very end, becoming a servant to them, fully thinking about others. So humility is one of those things that sometimes eludes us, but is really important for us, and Christ models what that looks like in our lives. I read a story about a church and a pastor. They had, they had voted their pastor the most humble pastor in America. Great title. They'd even given him a medal that said, to the most humble pastor in America. The next Sunday, they had to take it away from him because he wore it to church. And so, uh, deeply exuding that he was not the most humble pastor as he bragged about that. So, let's look at what we see about the humility of Christ in John 13. Look with me in verse 1 again. And I want to talk first of all this morning about the everlasting and practical love of God. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. So His worst hours are upon Him. They're just hours away. And in His last hours, He spends them pouring His life one more time into the men that He had called to follow Him and who would become the leaders of the early church. And He gives them the most clear God-centered teaching 
And he gives them this unbelievable God-centered expression of his love as he takes on the posture and the model and the actions of what slaves did. So the text just says, He knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world back to his father. This hour had been promised since Genesis chapter 3 when, when God came and he spoke to Satan. And he told Satan, From the seed of the woman will come one, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring, and you will strike at him, and, but he will stomp you and he will be victorious. And since the garden... Then you had God starting over with Noah. Then you had the leadership, the promise. You had the promise to Abraham that from Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then you had in the leadership of Moses all of these pictures of the one who would come. And then you had the promise that from the line of David would come the Messiah. And then the prophets wrote and spoke and preached about the one who came. Then John the Baptist came and he preached and said the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. And then you had three years of Jesus' ministry. And so the long-awaited hour is present. He will be dead in about 18 hours. He will breathe His last. Sin will be defeated. Three days later, the grave will be conquered. And so watch what the text says. In His last hour that He embraces, it tells us this, He loved those he had chosen not 80 percent of the way he loved them until the very end look earlier in john chapter 12 verse 27 this hour was heavy on him john 12 27 jesus writes now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this purpose i have come to this hour in 28 he says Father, glorify your name. So three years he has invested in them. He has given them words. He has done miracles. They have seen the evidence that he is God in their midst. He is the Messiah. And what an incredible reality to know this, that we have been loved from eternity past and will be loved for all of eternity future. And if you know him today and you are in a relationship with him, our salvation is secure not by our works, but because of His work and because of what He has done. And so John wants us to know He loved us until the very end. He would pour out His love. He would, he would model for them His deep love and His heart for them, and they would be His focus. He's not focused on His own safety. He's not, you know, men are. Men like to eat. Let me, let's get the supper going, and Jesus was going to sneak out the back door and run away from this. No, He would pour his life out into them in these last hours and then they would in a few hours do what flee from him they would run away and they would kind of hide during the night it was all but the apostle john who would go to the cross and behold christ hanging there and so for a brief amount of time their life is about to be shattered and so he pours into them incredible important truths shortly he will say to them greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. And again, just to say it, he is not looking for a way out. He is going to drink the cup all the way. No doubt later, they would look back on this night, not understanding the significance of it in the moment, 
But they would look back on this light this night and they would know two really key things that were true of that night. That one, yes, He loved us until the very end. We know that to be true. And secondly, He loved the Father and He embraced everything that the Father wanted for Him because He, he loved until the end in laying down of His life. And so, before we move to point two, I want to I kind of give a summary of what we're going to see in John chapter 13 through the end of verse 17. Let me give you three things that take place in the upper room. The first one is this, is the master of the universe will become the servant of sinful humanity. So this example from Christ, when we really consider His holiness, and we are acquainted with our sinfulness, this, this washing of their feet should drive us, and washing of our feet should drive us to deep humility and great worship because of what He has done for us and move us to desire to walk in obedience with Him. Think about this for a moment. This is the Creator of the universe who spoke the world into existence in six days, stooping low to wash the feet of people who were confused often about who He was and what He was saying. But they would get it, and they would get it in such a powerful way. But in this moment, He is washing sinful humanity's feet here's the second thing we will see in the upper room the master will prepare them for the rest of their lives and what they are to do with heaven's words again i thought this week about what's what's what section of the bible have i read more than any other section of the bible I try to think that i mean how do you you know how do you account for all of that but i i can honestly say i think for me I have read John 13 through 17 more than any other section of the entire New Testament. I have found over the years going back to that because of the incredible teaching. Our, our most extensive understanding of who the Holy Spirit is comes from the mouth of Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16. So when we get to those chapters, you will see some incredible things that talks about what the Spirit's ministry and role is in our life and so he will use words to prepare them for the days ahead here's the third thing he will give evidence that he was willing to embrace his people all the way to the very end the fulfillment of what he spoke in john chapter 10 will come to fruition in about 18 to 20 hours as he's hanging on the cross You'll remember these words in John 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my, down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority Jesus says to take it up again and this charge I have been given by my father so I want us to see this before we move on to point two you this morning you are loved with an everlasting love every one of us in this room this morning and that love is just not so wow that's awesome it is incredibly practical seeing the son of God take off his outer garment, wrap a towel around his waist, and to come to people and wash their feet. So yes, this love is everlasting. It is from eternity past all the way to eternity in the future, and yet it is 
undeniably practical, is it not, in our lives? We look back over our life and what has God done? He has manifested His love in goodness in our lives. He is eternally, eternally loving and good. So this everlasting practical love of God we see in the text. Let's look at the second thing. Everything is not, by the way, if you've lived life for a while, everything, everything goes well, right? No challenges in life? Well, Jesus had great challenges. And in the upper room, again, such incredible important things take place in the upper room. Guess who's also active in the upper room? Satan. And so verse 2 tells us that in the upper room, there is somebody in the room whom Satan is dominating and working. And I want to talk now for a moment about the hatred of Satan for Jesus and for humanity and mankind. Throughout history, Satan had aimed to stop and thwart the coming of Christ based on Genesis 3, verse 15, by attacking the Jewish people and trying to keep the coming of Christ um, to fruition. Let me remind us, Satan is not sovereign. Who is sovereign? God. God alone is sovereign. But he can have influence over sinners like Judas, and he has done so in Judas's life. He has, listen, do not think for a moment that Satan is in control of Christ's life. He was never in control of Jesus' life. Guess who was behind the death of Jesus? The Father was. Peter preaches this on the day of Pentecost. That this man, Peter says, was delivered up by the divine foreknowledge of God. This was the plan. So I want to deal with this for a moment. And maybe this freaks your mind out. Don't let it. Just think about it. Was there a possibility that Jesus was going to fail in this mission? He was tempted. What if he, what if he thought of himself and chose to do this? I want to put forth this morning that this was not ever a possibility. Because our God's plans are perfect. And so if he planned that the Son would come and to die on the cross, what was the Son going to do? He was going to die on the cross. And so again, this gives us an unbelievable foundation to our salvation. He was going to rescue and redeem his people. He was going to come and he was going to die. And so in the text as we see this here, though Satan thinks he's in control, the Father is in control. This has been the plan that Christ would redeem his people and he would die. But Satan is always ever at work. Let me give you a definition of Satan just for a moment. He is the prince of everything that is evil. Look around at our world today. You see evil. Guess who is behind that? Satan is the prince of everything that is evil. This week I put, just a couple of days ago I think, or yesterday, I can't remember when, um, I put something of what's been going on in Nigeria, the country of Nigeria on the African continent since 2009. There have been almost 50,000 Christians have been martyred since 2009 in Nigeria. 18,000 500 little girls have been taken from their homes and entered into the sex slave trade within the country of Nigeria. Thousands upon thousands of churches 
have been burned and destroyed since 2009. Who's behind all of that? Satan's behind all of that. Because his aim is to do whatever he can do to mock the glory of Christ and to rob people from knowing Christ in an intimate way. Well, because Satan is a thief, he found a cohort, even though there was going to be one who was going to betray. We know that from the Old Testament. He found a kindred spirit in Judas. I want you to go back to John chapter 12, just one chapter. Let's talk about what issue in Judas's life that the devil knew of and found somebody willing within the 12. John 12, verse 4. So after Mary anoints Jesus, it says this, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii he given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas seemed to have a propensity to love what? Money. He's, Judas was a thief. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy the prince of all evil. So again, here's Judas. Jesus wasn't doing what all that Judas wanted to do, and so Judas thought he would kind of get involved and do with this. And so he would steal from the ministry, and then here they find someone where they offer him 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. In those days, you go back 2,000 years ago, that was about five weeks of a normal wage. That was about $600 in Judas's day. If you were to bring this up to 2021, give or take a little bit of inflation, about $4,300 is what Judas was offered. Somewhere around $4,300 to $4,400 if he would betray Jesus with a kiss. He is, his heart was gripped by money. And so it was easy for him just to open up his wallet, take the money, and to tell the people where he was, where Jesus was later that night. Let me just say this before we move on to the next point this morning. We must watch our hearts. Guard your heart, Solomon said. Above all else, guard your heart, for out of your heart flow the well springs or the issues of our life. We must not give our heart to the things of this world. I remind us, Judah saw everything that John and Peter saw for three years. Saw the same things. Heard the same words. But had another agenda for Christ. And the agenda was not to follow Him. And so John here is contrasting the incredible love, eternal love of Christ for people. As he models servant and washing their feet contrasting with the darkness that can fill our hearts as we see Judas. Judas, as a matter of fact, look at verse 27 of John chapter 13. Hates so much. It says, Then after he had taken, this is Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. So there has always been, there will remain a hatred for God and Christ and a hatred for mankind. Let's look at the third thing. I want to talk about the majesty of what Christ knew. And I want to talk about his knowledge. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back 
to God. Let me give you three things here that are really important to know. Everybody knows what omniscient means, right? All, omniscience, all-knowing. So Christ knows everything. He knew everything. His life, He knew when He came. He knew what was coming, what was ahead for Him. And particularly in His ministry, He knew every aspect of things. He knows everything that's taking place on this night. Every single aspect of it. So the omniscient knows. He knows everything. But this is not a knowing like our knowing. This is the omniscient God knowing all that can be known. He knows the finality of the time that is present before Him. He knows the fullness of why He came. He knows the darkness of the battle that is happening and taking place in Judas's life. He knows what Satan is wanting to do and accomplish and how he wants to mock Christ. He knows everything. He knows the horrors of the cross that are just hours away from him. And so there is nothing lacking in the knowledge of what Christ knows. And everything that he's about to do, everything that he's about to say is Father ordained, God ordained, and centered in the knowledge of God and Christ. And he had known what would come to his life, his whole life. So that's the first thing. The omniscient knows. He knows everything, and Jesus is aware of everything. Secondly, I want you to see what the Father, what Jesus knew is this, is that the Father had given everything into the hands of Jesus. Now, those of us who are parents, um, if you're not there yet, you will be. You're going to get older, and you're going to have a brand new car one day. And your kid who's got a brand new license is going to come in and say, I want to take my friends out in your new truck tonight, Dad. And your dad's heart loves the kid, but your dad's heart's like, I know 16 and 17-year-olds, they don't always pay attention, and they weren't their friends. And you're going to have that moment of, I don't know if I can hand my truck. I'm not ready to hand my truck over tonight to them. I want you to see this. He's not like us. When the, listen to what the father did. He so fully trusted his son that he gave him all things were entrusted into Christ's hands. The father trusted Jesus fully. And so, so it says Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. He knows this reality. As a matter of fact, he tells him on the, on the day of the Great Commission, when he speaks the Great Commission in John 28, or Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By whom? By the Father. The Father trusted the Son, gave this purpose and plan to the Son to go all the way to the cross. So the washing of the feet was the perfection of of the Father's plan. Christ dying on the cross was the perfection of the Father's plan. Him having the authority to lay His life down and the authority to take His life up had been given to Christ. And so the Father completely trusted Jesus in this, had given Him all things, meaning this, He would accomplish our salvation. This was not a possibility that salvation would not be accomplished. He was going to accomplish Salvation. Here's the third thing he knew. He knew that he was going back to his Father. So I'm going to put all the three together again. Jesus knowing all things, knowing everything. 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. When we get to John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and he prays these words in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John six sixty two. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Where was he? He was in the presence of his Father. He was not meant to stay here for forever. And he's going to tell them, I'm about to go away, and they're, they're going to get all sad. At the end of John chapter 13, they're like, okay, where are you going? And they're sad. In John chapter 14, he's like, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I told you, listen, if I'm going away, I'm going to come back for you, and it's good for me to go away. If, if I go away, the Father will, and I will, send you a helper. And he will bring to your remembrance everything that I have ever said. And they're just overwhelmed in the moment. We've had 2,000 years of studying the upper room sequence. They're living it in the moment, trying to grasp the significance of everything that is being communicated to them. But Jesus is telling them, I'm going back to my Father. How could he go back into heaven? Can sinners, could he go back if he didn't accomplish? No. He's going back into the presence of his Father. Why? Because he was going to accomplish in perfection the Father's will and the Father's work. So in the midst of the hatred of Christ and the hatred of man, the enemy is working on this night. Jesus knew all of that, and he knew that things were going to be okay. So here's what he does. And before we see what he does, we've got to go back to Luke chapter 22 again. So go back to Luke chapter 22 one more time. I don't find this shocking. You might find it shocking, but they're in the upper room. And the disciples are not getting along together. They have a dispute. They're fighting. And it has nothing to do with humility. It has everything to do with pride. So watch Luke 22, 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you picture that? <laughs> Christ is 18 to 20 hours away from dying on the cross, and they're talking about how great they are. Nobody's great. Nobody's great in this room. There's only one great one, and it's King Jesus. They're talking about how great they are. They don't realize, no, they, the great one's in the room, but none of them are it. So look at 25. So he's got to talk to them again. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you become as the youngest... And the leader is one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you 
as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's an interesting lesson. This is what's taking place before he washes their feet. No, I'm, 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 I'm better than John Llewellyn. Did y'all know that? I'm better than John Llewellyn. And then John Llewellyn would say, no, 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 no. I, I'm better than Mark Donahoe. And then Mark Donahoe would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm way better. I've spent time with Jason Woodward, and I'm way better than Jason Woodward. And this is what they're doing. The silliness of the human heart. Can I remind us? Well, I'm going to anyway, whether you give me permission. Nobody in this room today is that great. But I'm telling you about somebody who is this morning. And his name is Jesus. And he stooped low to wash people arguing about how great and awesome they were. He loved them in the midst of their nastiness. He loved them in the midst of their pride and washed their feet. So watch this. Jewish males wore a seamless tunic, robe, whatever you want to call it. When they worked, and and if they were to run, they would never wear this, but if they were going to work and they were going to move, they would take it off. So underneath, they would have, you know, a lighter garment that was underneath. And so he takes this off, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he pours water into a basin. And he begins walking around to the feet of those who have been arguing about how great they are. And he's just told them, listen, this is what, the, what y'all are doing. That's what the Gentiles do. They talk about how great they are. This is what Caesar does. But this is not to be with you. The greatest are those who serve, not the one who's served. And so if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks of that multiple times in the gospel. You are one who serves and so he goes around and he washes their feet two thousand years ago who washed the feet at homes slaves slaves so in the room jesus is walking around washing the feet they have seen this they have experienced this slaves washing their feet now they're seeing their lord wash their feet and in the room it gets very uncomfortable and I don't know if you've ever had your feet washed before. It, it, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's just, there's a humility in, in, in that moment. It's just a powerful thing that happens as, as people serve you in this way. And so everybody's watching Christ move around as a slave in the room serving. This was not the first time this took place. Um, did you know that moms sometimes get involved in their sons' lives? Did y'all know that? Sometimes moms, even in their adult children's lives. James and John were brothers, and their mom one day thought, you know what, I'm going to go talk to Jesus. So Matthew, who was an eyewitness, an earwitness, witness all of this, wrote for us in Matthew chapter 20 that... Um, James and John's mother came up to Jesus one day, and she had something on her heart, and so Jesus asked her, what do you want? And she said, well, you see my two sons here? 
when you come in your kingdom, I want one to sit on your right side and I want one to sit right next to you on the left side. That's all I want. Not a big deal. That's it. And Jesus looks at her and says, I don't have, even though he has all authority, he says, listen, that's not mine to give. That's the Father's business. And then he proceeds to say what? You want to be great? You'll be a servant. You'll be like a child in humility, eager to learn. So the Son of Man becomes a servant. And I, I'm just blown away by this reality this morning. I want, you, I want you to think about this. Before anything had ever been created, the Father, Son, and the Spirit were present. And in the presence of the Father, the Son had this unbelievable glory. We will see in a few weeks. You know what the, you know what the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is? To magnify the glory of Christ. And here is the one whom the Father trusted completely to come. He would obey completely all the way to death on the cross. The Spirit's main ministry was to exalt the Son. Here's this one. He's not greater than the Father. He's not greater than the Son. They are one. But here He is. This eternal, holy, righteous God stooping low to wash the feet of people. By the way, just like you and I, the apostles. Sinful people who need a Savior. Well, it's very uncomfortable in the room. And Peter has been watching Jesus do this. It seems like Peter is number 12 on getting his feet washed. And he's been thinking to himself, gosh, why don't any of these knuckleheads say anything and tell Jesus he's got to stop this? And Peter, always easy and quick to volunteer himself to speak into the situation. In verse 6, says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like, no, you, you can't do this. And so Jesus said, listen, what I'm doing right now that you've been witnessing, you don't get it, you don't understand it now. But afterward, you will come to understand this. So I'm going to talk just for a moment about coming to a place of understanding what Christ does. Can you see Peter's expression as he's watching the room? And what does he know is about to happen? He's going he's gonna to have his feet in Jesus' hands in a minute, and he doesn't want that to happen. So he's been watching it. He can't understand what's going on and happening. He doesn't know what to do with it, and so he speaks. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Because he knows that Jesus is coming to him. And I tell you, you look at the Gospels, and Peter was often at times acquainted with his brokenness and his lack of understanding about things. Y'all remember when before they were called into the apostles, they had spent all night fishing, and Jesus shows up on the shore. Hey, friends, you catch anything? No, we spent all night. Well, throw your net out on the other side. And so they throw their net on the other side, and they catch so many fish. And they get there, and Christ is there. And, he, and this incredible thing, and Luke writes for us this, is that Peter's in the presence of Jesus and said, to When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. There are moments where Peter's sinfulness brought a humility, and then there are moments when he said, Never, Lord, never will I deny. And again, that's why we must consistently submit our heart to Christ.
And so as Jesus is, watch, stooping low, Peter's doing this, pulling away. And sometimes in our life, men and women, students, we just need to let Jesus do what Jesus does to us, no matter how uncomfortable it may be. Because it is the most freeing thing when he does his work in our hearts and in our minds. So Peter saw the action of Jesus and he didn't get it. But is this not the story of our life? Anybody have it all down yet? Anybody have Christianity down yet? Okay, no no hand raisers? Okay, yeah. This is the rest of our life. What's the rest of our life? It's called sanctification. It's called learning and growing. And then sometimes we have great lessons. And what do we do? We forget the lessons, don't we? And we kind of relearn them in a fresh way and and a reminder. So here, they don't understand everything in the moment, but someone's coming who will help them. The Holy Spirit will come, and He will help them understand everything that Christ had done. And so Jesus says, look, what I'm doing now, you you don't get it. I I get it that you don't get that. But afterward, you're going to understand that this is, Peter, the way you're going to have to live the rest of your life, washing the feet of others, serving as, as Peter, the rock. You will serve others, and this is how you will live the rest of your life, the life of sanctification. All right, let's look at the last thing this morning. I want to talk about the necessity of being washed and why we must be washed by Jesus. So look at verse 8. He doesn't understand, by the way. His words prove it. So Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Very emphatic. And so Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And so Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And look what he says there. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. I tell you, you ever been a little too bold in God's presence? This is, man, this is bold. You, you, do you know what we call him? He called him Lord. You know what Lord means? Sovereign. Most high over everything. Uh, I'm not giving you permission to do this in my life. And Jesus is like, okay, you can go that path, Peter. But if you go that path, you will have no share with me. So, Peter, you've got to just, you've got to submit to this and let me wash you because in my washing, you will have a share with me and be connected um, in this. This is an improper reverence by Peter in this moment, telling Jesus, who's doing a God ordained thing, that he doesn't want it to happen to him. And again, I get it. This is overwhelming. It doesn't compute in his mind that his Lord is taking the posture of a slave. But let me just say this. We are to submit and yield to whatever Christ wants to do in our lives. As our, in our obedience and embracing what he wants to do, gives him the greatest glory as we follow him. 
So Jesus says, listen, this washing is a Christ-centered, God-centered thing. This is a Father-ordained act that I'm wanting to do. And so if you're not willing to submit to this, if you're not willing to allow me to wash you, then you're going to have no part with me. So Peter, you've got to submit. Now let me talk about washing just for a second as we wind things up here. The Jews were commanded to bathe completely before the Passover. So they would bathe and they would get clean. They would get their body clean. And then they would walk to a family member's house or walk somewhere. And so what got unclean on them? Their body was clean, but their feet were unclean. So here's what Peter's saying, or what Jesus is saying. If you'll see in verse 10, he says, The one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And then Jesus says, and you, he tells them, he's telling Peter, he's talking to Peter, and Peter, you are clean. How is Peter clean? It's not because he washed somewhere. He's not, Jesus' most concern is not dirt on our bodies, right? Are we in agreement about that? He's concerned about our soul. So how is Peter's soul clean? Who's Peter's faith in? Jesus. Now, does he understand it all? No, he doesn't understand it all. But his faith is there. Salvation has come. Peter is clean. But as we walk through the world, we pick up stuff, don't we? And so what do we need relationally? We need cleaning relationally. So he's clean except for his feet as he walks and things attach themselves. And so that's what he's telling. He's saying, Peter, yeah, you believe. You're, you're, you're in the family. But what you need is this daily renewal that comes from washing. And so he says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have nothing in common with me. So extreme, Peter. No, 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 you're not doing this. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Can you just take the whole thing and pour it over my head? Because I need my head washed. (laughs) I need my hands washed. And I need you, Jesus, to touch every thing though it's still not the right response i love his heart i need you jesus to wash me i need you to cleanse me so the light of understanding kind of comes on his head for the moment and he knows that he can no longer refuse this work of christ in his life so he submits jesus washes his feet because no share with christ was not something that he wanted he, he wanted everything that Christ had to offer. And I tell you, every one of us in the room this morning must desire for Christ to fully cleanse us of our sin. You know what cleanses us really well? The Word of God. So in John fifteen three, Jesus says, Already you are clean. How are they clean? He says, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Another perspective of Jesus' words here is they point us to see the practicality and the importance of washing one another's feet. And in case you're nervous that I'm going to come to your seat this morning and wash your feet, I'm not, okay? But I really seriously thought about it. But let me give you some examples of what this looks like. At 2 o'clock in the morning, your heart is overwhelmed and you don't know what to do. 
and you're crying out to God, but you need to talk to somebody who loves you and you love them. And you need to pick up a phone and call somebody. And part of washing each other's feet is from 2 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. talking on the phone with somebody and soothing their soul by praying with them and speaking truth into their heart. Sometimes washing one another's feet is showing up at somebody's house and helping get things taken care of because it needs to get taken care of. Sometimes it's sitting over a cup of coffee at a house or at some other place and talking about life and, again, washing one another and encouraging one another in the faith. I don't know about you, but I've been really, really broken at times in my life. And I I needed somebody to come wash me. Yes, I always need God's forgiveness, but I need real people, tangible people at times to be right next to me, reminding me of His glory and my need of Him. So Jesus closes here and He says, but not everybody is clean. Peter, you're clean. You just need your feet, feet washed. You've been bathed. You've been washed. For He knew, verse 11 says, who was to betray Him. And that is why He said, not all of you are clean. It's important to note here, guess whose feet also got washed? Judas's feet. And I thought this week, um, when he got to Judas, did he pinch, his, pinch him on the bottom of his feet? I know what you're about to do. Obviously, he didn't do that, obviously. You know what I think he did when he got there? I think he washed them the same as he did Peter's. He lovingly washed the betrayer's feet and I wondered what Jesus felt as he was doing that I wonder what he thought in that moment and then I wondered I wonder what Judas felt knowing what was in his heart knowing what he was about to do and so Jesus washes his feet before he goes to collect his funds so we're going to stop there Next week, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to sit down. He's going to say, okay, we've got a debrief. <laughs> I've just given you an example. And let's talk about what this means. Let's talk about this means. So today, I just wanted to kind of set it forth for us. This is what this looks like, what it sounds like. This is the significance of it. So we'll look at some more practic- practical things um, next week. But let me close with this thought. I hope you see this morning the absolute necessity in all of our lives as Christians to be washed by Jesus in salvation. And then as we do life, that together with one another, we wash one another's feet, ministering to one another, serving one another, giving of time and energy and talents and all of that, ministering to one another as Christ ministered to the twelve. Let's pray.